From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. They're saying that he, the problem is that he eats like a child. So this is the, probably the only thing I have in common with Joe Biden. When he came the second time, I actually thought it was all over because um, I didn't think I'd get away from him. When I was doing my exams, um, I never had any access to the poets I was studying. I couldn't go and shake Emily Dickinson awake from her grave or anything. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily. Why isn't De Valera Street a thing? Surviving an attack by a bull. And when your poem unexpectedly features in the leaving cert. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that will arise and go now and go to... Where was it again? The musings on the news, or musings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show began with our host taking a trip to a local historical site. Yesterday I went to Kilmainham Jail. At the actually it was at the suggestion of my eldest daughter who said I'd love to. I said great, well let's go. So we went along about one thirty, um, and it was I forgot I hadn't been there for years. I forgot how stunning it is. And the first people I'd like to thank this morning are the people who uh, rescued the jail from just being forgotten and borderline destroyed certainly I know that a lot of people in the 70s I think and 80s a lot of you listening in today you're, 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 you're either you're, you yourselves or your uncles your aunts your dads and mums uh, got mothers got involved in it and got it going and, and that first of all well done to you and then there's the people who stand at doors and with their headsets on and uh, work really hard on the in the in the in the jail itself fair play you do they do a great job um, but it's that sense of volunteerism back in the 60s and 70s when they kept it alive was so important. But it it was, we were just, uh, uh, oh gosh, it was just so interesting. My cousin Sinead is doing a lot of work on our maternal grandmother, Mary Coyle, who was a guest, if you will, uh, at, at Kilmainham Jail. Uh, she was a prisoner there for uh, May to September in the 1920s. And uh, she was... Uh, in fairness to this, the staff very kindly, Brian Crowley and and, and others showed us the they took out some of the autograph books. So what would happen is the female prisoners would be there, and at the end they'd all have these autograph books and they'd sign messages to each other as the prisoners, the male men did in the various camps. They would have kept in internment camps and what have you. And sure enough, there was uh, my grandmother's signature in two or three of the autograph books, Mary Coyle from originally from Derry. Um, and uh, it was quite something to, to be able to see those. Um, and then the tour itself, which uh, we got, our guide on the tour was Joanne, a woman who knows her stuff. Not a note in the, in the hand, just off the cuff and clear, lucid, fascinating take on, on the full museum itself. You start at the altar at which uh, the, the, the song Grace, of course, uh, we now know about so well. Uh, is is based Grace Gifford and Joseph Mary Plunkett got getting married there the day before, the evening before his execution. Fifteen minutes they had together, and then he was taken away. And within hours, uh, he was killed. He was obviously executed by the the British soldiers. And the Stonebreakers Yard, where the the the, the leaders of nineteen sixteen were all uh, executed. Um, of course, that particularly the the gruesome assassination or, or execution of James Connolly, who had to be dragged onto a, a chair because he was so badly injured and uh, not to mention all the other uh, leaders of the rising it, it, it's quite very moving very visceral actually and then you go into the cells and above some of the cells you'll see Countess Markovic's name and you'll see Eamon um, de Valera's name and you'll see pretty much all the leaders names and 
And then they remind you about the famine and how the prison was full, mostly of street kids who were just scrabbling around trying to get food. One, one, one kid in the, who was a prisoner in the Kilmainham jail in the 1940s was five years old. Uh, but he was caught and he was trying to steal and they were trying to steal to get food and so forth. So the, the walls of that museum sing with history and they sing, they sing laments, actually, as much as anything else. And uh, it is well run. It's beautifully put together. Uh, so as I say, thanks to Joanne, thanks to Brian Crowley and Aoife Torpy who took us aside and said, there you go. There's your, there's your uh, details from your own family. And actually, Aoife was saying as we was walking out the door, you know, you have another family relative on your father's side um, who was here for different reasons. Oh, God, holy smoke. Surprised they let me out of the place. Um, uh, but we, we, we loved it. We had a, we had to, and they, they also have a museum space there, about three floors, and there's a new exhibition about the women who spent time in the prison. And, you know, uh, that's, that was also uh, fascinating, the Kuman Amon and, and beyond. And then you have the, uh, the prison itself where you see the, you, you'll recognise it from films like The Italian Job, which was filmed there, and In the Name of the Father was filmed there, and scenes of Michael Collins was filmed there. And, you know, it's just, <laughs> I could talk about it all day, but you've got to go online and you've got to book it. And if you go, bring kids, because that's the best thing. And I was walking along and a little van <laughs> full of kids erupted with excitement. And, a, and a, a lady got out and she said, I'm driving this van full of kids from Drogheda. Will you get in and say hello to them? I said, of course I will. So into this sweaty van <laughs> of first year, there were six class kids from Drogheda uh, and, and the bang of pencils and crisps. And, 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 the, and they were all excited. And we had a great chat. I gave them a three minute history uh, uh, love in about how important that building was and these you know, next generation of young Irish boys and girls ready to fully equipped with the, that knowledge of where they came from. I was delighted with, with, with them and we had a great fun doing that. That's what Tubbs did with his Monday afternoon. Par for the course, right? But I hear you say, can he solve a problem like Dev? Here's a question that we, we were positing on, in the car on the way home. We, we got a cup of tea on the, from the shop across the road and drove home with that going, what do you think of all that? We were just shooting the breeze about it all. And my oldest was reminding me about her brilliant teacher, Mr. Oman, who was a history teacher in the school she was in. Who, do you remember that guy? He was just he's great. He used to dress up in this, as a soldier and bring all these history students out on the, on the train to the GPO and deliver the proclamation. I mean, what a great, this is pure captain my captain stuff. Anyway, uh, and he had posed a question in his class going, and I'm going to pose it here. So you, you've got a Houston station and you've got Collins Barracks and you've got, you could, we could be here at Parnell Square and we could go on with, with uh, the leaders of the revolution and we could go on with uh, O'Connell Street, Street and so on. And the question was, and this is regardless of your politics, I know a lot of you go, oh, typically, but where's the De Valera Street? Can anyone think of a De Valera? Um, there has to be. There must, maybe they're in Brewery or Ennis or they're around Clare or Limerick. Where, but there's a Devil Air Square where it's not, it's not it's not one that's jumping out at me as to that I know about. But what I'm really talking about, I suppose, is the main thoroughfares, the main airports. It just didn't happen. So regardless of your politics, for a man who loomed so large as Taoiseach and president for so long, it's it's it strikes me as being peculiar that and I'm sure we'll get a lot of, a list of places, but they're not they're not the big ones. I'm just curious about that. I'm not saying whether it's a good thing or a bad thing because that's not my job. But I am saying it was funny that that one, he was definitely one that got away when it came to naming the big ones. The big ones I'm talking about. Okay, here's my two cents on it. 
all the other historical figures were dead when the streets were named. Dev lived until the mid-70s when we weren't renaming streets anymore, despite so many still being named after British generals, viceroys, corgis, etc. I mean, Grafton Street is named after the illegitimate son of King Charles II, for crying out loud. Throw Devil Era in there. Everybody's happy, right? Anyway, enough of my yakking. Let's get some news in our newsings. The uh, tragic first words four Colombian children spoke after surviving for 40 days in the Amazon jungle have been revealed by the rescue. Did you see this story about the four the, these kids? Found the, the, the plane crashed. The mother said, go on, and said to the oldest kid, uh, child, just mind, mind the children. And 40 days they wandered around the Amazon jungle. How do they? Um, uh, it, but the first thing that the, one of the children who's four said was, my mother is dead. And they're the miracle children. And they were found in a forest clearing, no shoes, fully malnourished. If you see pictures of them, they look terribly sick and they're too tired to walk. And the eldest child said, first words were, I'm hungry, as you'd, expect, as you'd appreciate. And they, they, they started telling everyone um, about how they guided <clears throat> the oldest one guided the younger brothers and sisters to survival despite torrential downpours, lack of food, dangerous animals in the in the virgin forest. <clears throat> and she pulled the youngest child from the plane after the crash and saw the feet of her littlest sister where the three dead were. And she pulled her out, said, said the granddad. And she told her family from the hospital room that the mother had fought to survive for four days after the crash. And then eventually told her children, leave her behind um, asking the oldest child to take care. So they have indigenous heritage, which they reckon helped them take shelter, make shelter out of the forest, discern the safe, nutritious fruits from the poisonous ones. They found one of the 108 kits from the, uh, that were dropped by the military. And they were sleep-deprived, terrified of the threats in the rebel-dominated jungle, ran away from voices of the search party and the barking of search dogs. And eventually they were they were found. They were hid, hiding in trees. They were scared and they're alive. And it is quite something. Isn't it though? Meanwhile, first world problems continue to grab the headlines in California. Silicon Valley escalates the battle over returning to the office. I had a great conversation about this on Saturday evening with some friends uh, about, you know, one one was a guy who's, who employs people and some of the guys who work in offices, some guys work from home. And funny enough, the, the, the general feeling was people preferred to be to work with people and it was more conducive to uh, ideas and getting things done. Um, uh, but equally, there were some who said then it was a very, yeah, the, the nuance of the debate then turned to, well, so if you work in finance, for example, maybe you don't need to be as creative and I could get into trouble for saying that, but you mightn't have to be as creative and therefore it's easier to work from home. You don't, it's, it's less hassle. But if you're in a creative business, I think definitely you need to be with people. There's no, there's no question about it. I've, I've seen it firsthand. You, you do. And, uh, but employees are going mad. So Silicon Valley companies led the charge to embrace remote work in the early days of the pandemic. And now their nerves are gone because they're saying, everybody, come on, get back in. And they're saying not come back in five days a week. They're saying, please come back in for three days a week. So now that the, the genie's out of the bottle in this one, and that's what's happened here. And the hybrid working thing is now, uh, it's now problematic for some and it's perfect for others. So it depends on which side of the uh, the divide you fall on. But they're now, uh, the companies are, they are are facing big opposition from employees who are who are saying, hang on a second, we don't really want to come back for, for uh, three days a week. We're happy at home. And, on it goes. A story with a beginning, a middle, 
but no real ending, I feel. Shall we take one more newsings item? Let's shall. Joe Biden cancelled all three of his planned public events on Monday. Why? Because apparently he's got a really, really intense sweet tooth. Now this caught my eye because I've got one, but I'm not as bad as I used to be. And he had to have uh, a, what they call a two-day root canal. Now anyone who hears the words root and canal together like that will know, and anyone who's had one, as I've had, one of the most traumatic dental experiences you'll ever have is a root canal. It's just horrible. But he really he needed to have a massive tooth. He's 80 years old. He must have been in that dental chair for quite some time. But he had part of a root canal on Sunday after experiencing some dental pain in his lower right premolar and that a second procedure had to happen on, on Monday. But they're saying that he, the problem is that he eats like a child. So this is the, probably the only thing I have in common with Joe Biden is, is, is eating like a child. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, okay, I'll tell the story. So, so a very, <laughs> I'll tell the story really quickly. A very nice person turned around to me and said, I'd like to bring you for dinner, a friend of mine. Uh, I said, I want to bring some of us for dinner, about five or six of us for dinner. I said, oh, it sounds great, like a great idea. Sent the menu from this restaurant. I'd never heard of. And I looked at the menu on, uh, in my email. I couldn't, there was not one thing on that menu I could eat. It was so complicated and so otherworldly and so uh, incomprehensible. I didn't know what, I didn't even know. I actually started reading it out saying, lads, what is this? What is this food? So I made a very impolite phone call to the very generous person and said, this is the rudest call I've ever made, but is there any chance we can just some, go somewhere and get a steak and chips? And he burst out laughing. and said, yeah, that suits me. So we all were out. So fine. So we're going out somewhere. <laughs> where I can actually eat the food. So that's that. But back to the um, eating like a child. Apparently, the president likes to drink orange Gatorade, which is kind of like uh, Lucasade. Uh, his favourite food include peanut butter and jam sandwiches. Check. I love that. Uh, BLTs. Had one yesterday. <laughs> Pizza. Weekend. Cookies. We call them biscuits. Had them yesterday too. Spaghetti. Love that. Nice and easy. Uh, with uh, Oh, he had spaghetti, spaghetti with butter and, and ketchup. I wouldn't be doing that. Ice cream. Yeah, I love that. And occasionally makes a, a, a full Sunday, and he's into that. So there, I don't think uh, Donald Trump's too far behind him. He likes his fast food. So they, they, they do have that income. Ryan had to go and ruin it by mentioning Trump, didn't he? I really don't think they have anything in common, even their diet. Anywho, let's leave the musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, Let's leave them there and try to forget that they were sullied by the mention of the Groper-in-Chief. Two banks in Ireland have raised their interest rates on savings recently, and on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Owen McGee, financial planner and author of How to Make Your Money Work, told Claire that this is definitely good news, but the banks need to do more. We're up at 2%. We haven't been here in over 10 years. It's a great, we're going in the right direction, all the positive things, but it kind of feels like a lot done, more to do type of a feeling. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at us, the most, the Central Bank of Ireland numbers would suggest that the average deposit rate that we get here in Ireland is just over 1.1%. And in the across the rest of Europe, it's over 2.1%. So let's just give us, we're half the rate on average across all of our deposit rates than our friends are in Europe. So that means that there's a reason behind that. Why is that? Why are our banks holding back? And <laughs> if I was a banker, Claire, it's because I can make money off it, is the blunt and the only way I can put it. 
if we have over 150 billion sitting on deposit right now, that's just households of Ireland, just the people of Ireland have 150 billion sitting in bank accounts right now. And I, if, you, if the bank takes that and lodges it with the European Central Bank, which they're perfectly entitled to do, that's how the banking system works, they'll get 3.25% on it. That's what the European Central Bank will pay them. And they're paying us now 2% or AIB and EBS are going to pay us 2% on our savings, which I think there's a bit more can be done. If our European counterparts are happy to take less of a spread between what they get off the ECB and what they pay their customers, why do our banks want more? So what's going on here? Why do they feel they can do this in this market? Is it lack of competition? Yeah, I think it is competition. Like, there are challenger banks that are coming in. There's another challenger bank in there. You know, I don't like giving plugs, but there is another challenger bank in there that's paying out 1.56%. Kind of didn't really get the same highlight as this big 2% rate guess. It's a great headline rate. It, it, and sorry, I don't want to sound completely negative about this. I'm delighted to see the rates going the right way on the deposit rates. But also, I would say that a bit more competition will drive this, will drive these rates better. It'll squeeze the difference between us and the rest of Europe. And that's what we need to encourage. And the only way we encourage competition, the only thing we can do as individuals to encourage competition is to do our walk, walking with our feet, actually move our money from one bank to another because the rates are better. People listening to your show this morning need to understand that if you, if, if you put your money with one of these challenger banks, and these are banks from across Europe, the only thing you need to check is where is the bank that you're putting the money with regulated? And if it's regulated in another European European country, like, say, it's regulated by the Dutch Central Bank or the Lithuanian Central Bank, it's the same guarantee that you get in those countries as you get in Ireland. The first €100,000 of your money is safe and backed by that government if that bank fails. Mm-hmm. So you so can, you can a, get a better deal. And, and you, I know you've advised us before on this programme that if you have money that you don't plan to spend for five years, you shouldn't really have it in the bank. Isn't that what you say? N- my guess just now, it's very anecdotal and maybe I should go off and do research on this. But when I have new clients coming into me and I'm looking at how much money they have sitting on deposit, if I extrapolate that out to the rest of the country, of the 150 billion that's sitting on deposit, I'd strongly suggest somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of that should not be sitting in a bank account. It just shouldn't be there. If you're not going to spend the money in the next five years, you are going to lose money against inflation. And to put this in really simple terms, if you save 100 euros a month at that 2% rate, 100 euros a month over 12 months is 1,200 euros. Let's ignore tax. At that 2% rate, you're going to have 1,211 euro. You'll have made 11 euros in interest on that. If you're lucky enough to have the lump sum of, 200, of 1,200 euros today just to put in today and you get the full 2% for the full 12 months, it's about 24 euros instead of 11 euros in interest. Not great. Now, the, no, not great. <laughs> the inflation rate over the last 12 months is about 6.6%. The thing, if you wanted to buy something today, and let's imagine inflation goes at 6.6% for the next 12 months, let's hope it doesn't, but let's imagine it does. Something that costs 1,200 euros today is going to cost you 1,280 euros in 12 months' time. So your bank account hasn't gone anywhere next or near keeping up with what we call keeping its purchasing power. Now, that's only over one year. If you put that over five years, Claire, there are people who are signing themselves into bank accounts. They're not going to use the money in the next five years and they are promising themselves that they're going to lose money against what the thing that they want to buy is. Yeah, they've going actually to lost money because of inflation and that low interest rate. Owen McGee, financial planner and author, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about interest rates on savings. Farmer Peter Toomey told Cullum O'Mungon on this afternoon's Live Line how he was attacked by a bull. 
Take us yeah. back to Monday morning, the 5th of June. What kind of a morning was it and how were you feeling as you headed out to your day's work? Yeah, sure. Look, it was uh, Monday bank holiday morning. Um, just heading down for cows, the normal routine. Uh, have a look at the pigs first and then stroll down for the cows and uh, open the gap to let them out for milking and just walk past the bull. And now the bull arrives Friday evening for the full story. The bull arrived in on hire on Friday evening and... I handled them in the crush on Saturday and I read his tag on Sunday so I was fairly confident about being able to walk past them you know and, um, and just for anyone who doesn't know the crush is a metal contraption to keep a bull close while you're while you're working with him to do your checks yeah. or, or tags or, yeah. or, or close examination yeah it's just a run it's basically an area that you, you walk him up and uh, like you try and always have a positive experience in the crush because you need to get him in again if you need to medicate him or if you need to do anything with any animal you try and so all I did was clip his tail so there was no stress with that or there was no issues there and like I read he's tagged in on Sunday morning because we've uh, heard that on the phone there it's an app for recording all the information the breeding and the calving and everything so I was able to read his tag number so I was within two feet of his head uh, in the yard and I would say that he was probably afraid of me more than anything, or that's the feeling I got anyway. There was no hint of danger whatsoever, you know. Right, so, so far, so good. He knows who the boss yeah. is in this operation. The bull's yeah. in the crush, and it's time It's time to let him out then at some point. So how, yeah, in the first no. place, do you do you let a bull into the cow, in, into the field with cows? Is it Do you let him pick the cow he's going to go for? Do you bring cows to him one yeah. by one? What way does that work? No, no, no. He just... He just he uh, cohabits with the cows like he's with them full time. So it's uh, you know it's whenever a cow will come in heat, then he'll he'll detect it and he'll he'll serve it. He'll do the business and uh, like that. We were AIing up until the Friday morning. So artificial insemination is something you do. Uh, it's a, it's an alternative, we'll say, to to a bull on the farm. But it it requires a lot of time and effort because and concentration. And when that goes on for five or six weeks, you know it's you've your main of your cows are in calves, so you let the bull off them with the cows, and the bull just runs runs with the cows and nine times out of ten there's never an issue you know right so basically with AI you have to monitor when the cow is in heat when they're ovulating yeah. and then you have to strike while the iron's hot you have to yes. bring the bottled substance to them the bull semen that you've got from the AI yeah. man to them and then you have to do the injection and then you have to hope for the best whereas if you leave the bull in the field you're cutting down on the labour the bull detects when they're in heat and yeah. they get together in, in their own good time in their own natural yeah. way yeah yeah, Mother Nature or whatever. Uh, it, and 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 <clears throat> look, it was the it was the old traditional way. It was probably all bulls before or whatever. But um, and how many bulls would you have handled? How long have you been doing this? I'm milking cows now, twenty two years at home, and my father would have had bulls before me, or whatever. So there was always a bull growing up here on the farm. And sure, look, it was always a, keen, a kind of a, a thing of excitement, you know, a cross bull would would be kind of something half exciting when you're young and uh, you're kind of carefree and you're not too worried about the, the dangers of them. Like, you know, like we've had run-ins with bulls over the years, myself, my brother maybe, and my father out, just one example, changing a water trough in a tractor and a Frisian bull trying to trying to lift the back wheel of the tractor basically while we were in it. Like, that's when we were small, but we still remember that as if it was yesterday because it was... What, the bull tried to get its head in under the wheel and tip the tractor? Yeah, he'd, hor he'd horns and he was just trying to get at us, like, you know, yeah, that's thir 35 years ago, probably. Or more. Right. So, so you weren't unaware of the dangers of, of dealing with yeah. bulls. But anyway, this one looked like he was he, he was he knew his place in in, in the operation and uh, as you say you, you'd hired him in had you had any experience of this particular bull before 
nothing at all. And uh, you'd kind of know, you kind of know by the head on him, like when they arrived. You know, this fella seemed docile, and uh, he's a cemental breed, and um, they're normally a very docile breed, like you know. So uh, they're really not that aggressive. It's the Frisian would normally be aggressive, but um, no, this guy look. Monday morning we went down for the cows and I just walked past them and I just looked at them and he just went straight for me and that was this, you know. And so you were inside in the field at this stage, were you? I was in the field, yeah. I was in the field. I was in the field. And how far were you from him and what was he doing when you, he caught uh, sight of you? Just, yeah, he was just in between a couple of cows and uh, I was only a metre from him. Like I could have walked behind him now in hindsight when I think about it. But, um, but I, just, I was just walking towards the water trough because there was issues with the water the night previous and... Um, I was just heading that direction and he just came straight at me like there was no pawing the ground or there was no nothing there was absolutely no sign that he was that he was going to do it you know um, sometimes you know bulls paw the ground and they'd, they'd be bawling and roaring and growling and they'd, they'd right. let you know like you know but, um, So how much ground did he have to cover? You said only about you were only about a metre from Only about him. a metre only about a metre yeah only So did you break into a sprint straight away or were you knocked to the ground? No, I was knocked before I knew it. It was it was happening before I knew it because um, he didn't hesitate, like you know. Um, and did so he go like, again when you were on the ground? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With so what? Like with his head or his his hoofs or what? With, yeah, no, with the head, with the head. But um, but I suppose I was lucky, like in that uh, it was at the top of a hill where he hit me, and if <clears throat> if he knocked me down the hill. I was kind of in open country and it was there was kind of be very hard to get away from him but uh, the fact that I was able to kind of stay going forward and he hit me the second time he kind of nudged me towards wire so I was able to scramble under electric fence then and uh, And did you have to turn your back on him or now at this stage are you still on your kind of hands and feet crawling backwards towards the fence were you keeping him in sight or were you just trying to get Uh, out of there whatever way A bit of both really like it was um, when he came the second time I actually thought it was all over because um I didn't think I'd get away from him, but um, and, and it all happened so fast. It was kind of happening before I even knew it. So, um, and did he have horns? Uh, no horns, no horns. Just a big pole, a big, big solid head. A big solid head, crikey! That's Farmer Peter Toomey telling Colmar Mungon on this afternoon's live line vividly how he was attacked by a bull. Brendan Marr and Pauline Cullen are parents to Rory and Fir, two boys with additional needs. They joined Ryan Tuberty this morning to talk about what it was like when the boys were born and how they cope with all the medical attention their sons require. So let's talk about then, you started your family and we'll talk about, we'll begin with Rory. He was born in May 2020. And let's start with the name Rory. Why did you call your child, your son, that name? It was either um, Rory or Ferdia. Uh, we both love Irish names. Um, and it's just when he was born, the little tuft of red hair came out and, ah. and that, that was it. That was the... So that was, yeah, the, yeah. that was the obvious. Yeah. Uh, tell me about him um, when, when he was born and what, what, uh, what, how your world changed as a result of, of becoming yeah. parents? Well, I suppose Brendan worked in Kilkenny Hospital and I felt when we got the diagnosis um, with the Harmony test, I was trying to kind of keep control of things and keep things normal. So I was saying, right, we'll go to the country hospital and we'll have him there. And we didn't know at that stage he'd heart problems. And what is the Harmony test and when does it happen? So 
It can be done, uh, Rosie's done about 21 weeks, I think. Yeah, yeah. no, 26 weeks, I think it was. Um, I can't remember. But, but uh, yeah, so it's it's a test to show there's, there's certain four things. That's yeah, it's, it's um, I suppose, I suppose it, it picks up chrom- chromosomal abnormalities. In uh, the womb. In, yeah, and Rory's came back. But before that, there, there are things called soft markers. One of them is a shortened femur, and Rory had it. Um, so that was when it flagged initially, and that was when it was that was hard to say. We were that Googling and Googling no, and wishing, um, wishing it wasn't, and yeah, then we got it, got the result to say that your baby's going to. It was down, yeah. so he was down syndrome. Down syndrome. We, it's, yeah. it's it's not a definite, it's a um, indicator, oh, highly probable, highly like, probab- yeah, a high yeah. probability, which yeah. was 99. Point <clears throat> Nine percent, I think, or ninety-eight percent. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah. But and, and tell tell me a little bit about you. You know, you you've said you wanted to have kids. Um, yeah. You said you were no spring chicken. I noticed that's yeah. an interesting way of putting yeah. it. Why did you say that? Well, I'm older, and being an older mum, you've I had a fear of having a Down syndrome child because there's more of a possibility. Okay. So, yeah, we and then the possibility happened. I suppose we looked at the one thing I always remember is looking at that little car seat and thinking about the child that you were going to have is not the child that you you have now it's you know you you, you grieve there's a big grieving process yeah going through it i've heard yeah. that i've heard yeah. that said before and and I, I i try to understand it i mean in the sense that when you have the harmony test <clears throat> they you, you realize okay this is what's your what for your your reality is going to be yeah. now um how did you manage the, that news together or i individually i just remember for i I was doing fine that day and I remember my sister rang that night and she really sent me off and it's nothing she said. It was just a, a nice sentence, a kind word, but I just, I, I bawled. Can I ask you what she said? I can't remember to be honest. Oh, <laughs> okay. honest to God, yeah. yeah but, but it was, it was just it was, something to, to yeah, reassure just, you yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah and the um, only, yeah. And that was it. And, the only and one I could get reassurance, sorry, Bryn. What's from, was yeah. my mum, she passed since, but I just felt she was the only person, she just said, you make it on with it, will you be grand? And, she was the only person kind of really that settled me. Yeah. Kind of, that was it. And so. very stark advice, just look, yeah, here it but is. She, she, it was heartfelt. That's what you wanted to hear. Okay, it was yeah. from a good place, obviously. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was. So you, you, came, you came around um, as much as you, you could um, and Rory yeah. came into the world. Yeah. How, how quickly was it apparent that, you know, it wasn't going to be a very straightforward shoot, um, if you like? I'd say that that evening, uh, I remember the, the pediatrician was called up to Skipu, a special care baby unit from pediatrics, and um, he had heard a, a murmur, um, and I suppose it was in COVID as well, so we were only allowed in to see him for a few minutes at, at a time. Um, and I remember I could see he hadn't piped oxygen on, or masked oxygen, but I could see he was struggling a little bit mm. and then they mentioned Crumlin and ambulance and two two days later he was transported up up to the heart centre uh, by ambulance and from Kilkenny so how, how old was he at this point two two and a half days old I'd say so that was when it, it all started then he was in Crumlin for three in, weeks uh, three weeks yeah. um, he had pulmonary hypertension for uh, and a condition called ASD which is an atrial septal defect as well um, and oddly enough what we didn't know then and what we know now is that if you're going to get a heart condition that's probably the one to get um, the easy, easier. Yeah. Um, who wants? Who wants? Who wants any heart condition? Mm, but, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but, but but here you are. Yes. Yeah, uh, so through the ringer with heart conditions. I with can babies, only imagine. But, um, so Rory's. We'd, if we'd only known then, what we know now, what we were going going to go through. Well, with the next baby. And let's focus with Rory for the moment in terms mm-hmm. of of the, the the pain of having to go to Crumlin, the pain of having to 
to you know take a two day old baby to a, a heart unit mm-hmm. if you like. Um, you got him home eventually. Was it how, how long was it before you? We got him home after three weeks, and then he was back in. He was back in two weeks later for a week, gastroenteritis, then he was out, then he was back in in August for uh, five days, then he was out, then he was back in in October for another five days. Rory had, uh, was diagnosed with chronic sleep apnea as well, so they, to, they did a five-day sleep study in Crumlin as well, um, and then he was set up in CPAP to be sent home on, on, on the CPAP machine then to, to help him at night. Okay. I'm sorry, being Pardon, part please. parents, this is kind of the nature of yeah. being... Um, uh, parents with heart babies in and out, in and out, in and out constantly, yeah. and you be kind of become a family of because you meet all the other parents up there, yeah. so you're constantly it's a community. You're, yeah. you're meeting these people all the time, and we're always kind of looking out for each other. And mm. there's uh, always a face to see that you know between nurses. Although sadly, a lot of the nurses that we know have gone, but uh, yeah, we still see the same faces of nurses. Some of the nurses up there from being up in the heart ward again. And Rory today is, what, three years old? Just gone three, Just gone three. Um, A typical day for him? A typical night for you? Um, It's better. He's been discontinued off the CPAP, uh, thankfully, since last November. So that's a huge help. Um, But he was was fed through a nasogastric tube up until he was a little over two years old. And then he had a peg tube surgically inserted last July. That will stay in indefinitely until we can get him eating. Um, so it's constant wound management with with that. Rudy's he's very low muscle tone all over systemically, but he's particularly in his in his uh, his solar plexus as well. So it causes the wound and the stoma to overgranulate. If he's any virus at all, um, it angers it, and then you could be changing that dressing two, three, four times a day. But sometimes on a lighter note he he, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he wakes up no I'm not uh, yeah, yeah. he wakes up with a smile on his face oh. Ryan and he always did um, when you pick him up in the cot he's still in a cot he's because great. Um, he just wakes up smiling that's and when the sun shines for yeah you. he just great. shouts and yeah. roars <laughs> yeah. one of us is in trying to um, lie down with the other baby because you might have been up half the night but you, you can't we have a small house and you get up and he's just he's he's come very different to feet but he, he wakes up smiling I and appreciate that and I'm glad you mentioned um, that there is that joy yeah, yeah well, he's I a suppose. huge joy he, yeah. he, you walk down the town my hometown of Bataille and he's like a celebrity is he? he mm. knows everybody's yeah. markets library our local library staff are like family to us at this stage but um, supermarkets everywhere he's just he he's a he's a magnet Tell me, Brendan, about the, 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 the decision to have another child and, and what, what drove that. Uh, for me, oddly enough, if Brewery had been born neurotypical, I suppose, yeah. or, um, I may not have wanted one, but it's just the diagnosis of Down syndrome changed it. I, I just didn't want him on his own. Um, and we were... You know, we asked a couple of the consultants and neonatologists and whatnot, you know, what, what's the probability of a second child with uh, with Down syndrome? And it's it's hard to label or give you a proper mm. score on it. So, <clears throat> and, um, but I just wanted him to have a sibling, you know, to, to, just for me anyway, uh, someone, someone to look out for him. And particularly when the harmony test for Fia came back, um, Negative. We thought yes. Your second low, low child. Poss- it's a low, low, possibility. low probability. So we're not, this is amazing. This so is we'll, go, we'll say yes. Yeah, so you have then hopefully you, you, your hope was to have a, uh, a child who will be there for Rory mm. uh, when 
you know, when times are tough or whatever, yeah. or times yeah. are good, doesn't even matter. A sibling, like yeah. Yeah, yeah. Simple, simple as that. Yeah, yeah. The harmony test you mentioned earlier comes back saying very, very unlikely. Yeah. Any any issues here? Um, um, and then what? Then bang, uh, he came out like lightning. Both, both Eight my kids, ago. both my kids were supposed to be sectioned, but they came early, both of them, and they came the way they were supposed to came, come, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah, we had him and. It was a completely different birth because we hadn't got those uh, ideas of the Down syndrome. We knew he had a serious heart condition, mm. and I I had been attending the Coom um, cardiology the 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 what's the name that's the cardio anyway, uh, the Coom the Franklin yeah, Franklin yeah. I, yes. but I'd been attending there, so we got such a shock. I suppose when our second child came out, we didn't know. We they, I remember when he came out. We were full of joy. We were worried about the, the, he had a more serious heart condition than Rory. But I remember one of the nurses said to me, um, "Has this baby been? Um, has, had the, have you had the chromosomal had, test? Yeah, I suppose, yeah, chromosomal yeah. test." Mm-hmm. Brennan said, "Yeah, he, it's not. I think you said I, he doesn't have Down syndrome. We had the test done, and I said, why are you asking that?' And she said, because he's displaying features of Down syndrome. So the joy kind of got sucked out of the room fairly <laughs> quick. It was just our, we couldn't speak." just looked at each other and oh we got such a shock but we kind of just had to you kick into just get on with it but but that he's well enough then and there don't you you know you're just worried about still his actual his physical condition at the time you know because the heart condition was so severe how severe at the time we didn't know back to Crumlin Oh yeah. Um, just remind me, he's if he is how old now? He is. He'll be eight months uh, on Saturday. Um, and how long has he been? How many times has he been to Crumlin? He was in. Uh, he was born in the Coombe. He was in the Coombe for a week, home for a week, in Crumlin for a week, home for seven weeks, and then in Crumlin for over four months. Um, very so very sick. Count. Very very sick. So sick we we're planning his funeral in February. That's how bad he was. Sorry. Yeah. That bad. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> Um, he was on life support for 60 days. 60 days. 60 days. Brendan Marr and Pauline Cullen, parents of Rory and Fiach, talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning. Today's five-year-olds will likely live to 100. Why is the ageing process going to be kinder to them than it is to us? Shane Bergen, physicist, host of the Trust Race podcast, and academic in the UCD School of Education explains what is going on. But just to get back to the basics of this, just to explain ageing to us, because we all take it for granted that it happens, but what is it and why does it happen? It is extraordinary that we live so long now. You know, when I look back to 1916, the year of the revolution, the average life expectancy in Ireland was 53 Right. In 2021, it was 84 for women and 81 for men. And as you just said, our, today's five year olds are likely, more likely to live to 100. And that's fantastic. And so we need to understand ageing if we are to live well, so that once we get into the retirement years, we're all still going and we're all still fit and healthy. And ageing really is the <laughs> unfortunate slow and gradual decline from peak fertility and uh, peak physiological function. So we're in tip top form. And fr- from a genetic point of view, this might sound harsh, but it doesn't make an awful lot of sense for animals and plants to live beyond their peak fertility mm-hmm. because one of our main genetic purposes is to breed and to have offspring and to keep the species going. And so because of science and healthcare and things like education, 
um, we, we live long now and we, we are rather special amongst all of the different types of animals to live well beyond our peak fertility where we bring that wisdom to our society in old age. And when does that decline begin? <laughs> That's a very good question and I wouldn't be brave enough to answer that. <laughs> Scientists know that, that I am. But um, when you look at what's happening though from a biological point of view, right, um, we're made up, you and I and all the listeners are made up of fundamental biological building blocks called cells. And um, they, there's trillions, trillions of them in our bodies and they uh, do things like, you know, there's red blood cells and you have tissue cells and all these bits and they work in concert to make you, you. So where the collection of cells move from being just biological entities to being Claire Byrne is a big question, right? And so I think that's fascinating. How do we make ourselves from these fundamental blocks? And um, another fascinating thing is the fact that they continuously renew and that keeps you young. So it's a question of um, the science of ageing is also the science of youth. How is it that we actually just don't fade away much quicker? And it's because our cells have this capacity to divide and renew. And every cell Seven to 10 years, most of the cells in your body will have renewed. With the exception of the neurons in your brain, everything gets recycled. And that happens with the cell splits in two, it divides and it has the basic blueprint. Um, your DNA is at the centre of that cell and something called the nucleus. So when it divides, it turns into two new cells that are healthier and keep you going. However, <laughs> that division process is something that can suffer from a little bit of stress and strain with time. OK, so that stops. It stops being as efficient as it was when you started your life. Absolutely. And we, we still don't fully understand the process of ageing. I come into your studio so often and talk about very so-called simple things in science like sleep, for example, or memory, which don't fully understand these things. Isn't that fantastic that despite hundreds, if not thousands of years of people thinking about these things, there's still so much that we don't know. And so the first um, kind of big theory about ageing is just wear and tear, that the body builds up waste and sort of, you know, just kind of like any object that we can think of, it just gets worn out mm-hmm. as it ages. The other think about is... the car or the rusty bike or whatever. This is what's happening to us. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. <laughs> Except we are far more efficient and we can live far, far longer than most of those inanimate objects. The other uh, big driver is genes. So there must be, there might be some internal clock in, in our cells that basically says you get a certain amount of division and renewal and after that you've kind of run out of genetic road and there is animal um, um, studies that have shown that where they can actually reverse ageing in some animals and slow it down which mm-hmm. we could come back so, to. Well, I mean we talk about that and we see those developments happening in science. Does that offer, offer hope if you wanted to go down this route of eternal life? A multi-billion uh, dollar industry, the, uh, the youth industry. Uh, yes, there is promise there but most of it's bogus. <laughs> so so uh, as to why our cells, cells themselves start to slow down, the Nobel Prize in 2009 was given to, to scientists who looked at how this division of cells worked. And they found that the genetic code that kind of tells one cell what to do for its offspring is protected by these ends called telomeres. And so if you imagine genetic code being like a long shoelace, at the end of it, there are these protective bits called telomeres that ensure that all of the genetics uh, get put into the new cell and there isn't any crossover. And they found that as we age, these protective ends start to fray and Ah. shorten. And um, they also found that you can create an enzyme or there is an enzyme that will lengthen 
those protective ends. And that's where scientists are looking. They're looking to see what we can do to keep the ends of our, our chromosomes happy so that when, when our cells are being divided and keeping us young, that it isn't going to fray quicker. Now- Dr. Shane Bergen, physicist, host of the Trust Race podcast and academic in the UCD School of Education, talking the science of ageing with Claire Byrne this morning. Cork poet Victoria Kennefix's poem Guest Room featured unexpectedly in this year's Leaving Cert English exam. It was the unseen poem and Catherine Thomas, sitting in for Ray Darcy, spoke to Victoria this afternoon about it. What can I say, Victoria? A huge congratulations to you. You're part of Irish history now. It would seem so, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me on the line. And happy Yates Day as well. It's very appropriate that we're speaking poetry today. It's the 158th anniversary of Yates' birth. Wow. So as poet in residence in the Yates Society, I just had to sneak that in there and give give our Yates a big up. Yeah, it's been an incredible couple of days. Um, It was quite a huge surprise and something I never really expected. So how did you find out that the poem had showed up on the paper? Well, like everyone else, I didn't know what was going up in the paper. And I have a few um, friends and colleagues who are invigilating. So once they had taken up the exams, I got this flurry of texts and messages going, oh my God, you're on. (laughs) So um, it was very thrilling and surreal actually, because obviously as a student, I had had studied the Unseen Poem, as we all have. Yes. Um, And equally as a teacher, I had guided a lot of students through that particular task So it felt like an incredible part of my journey as a writer to be featured. Yeah. And I mean, I just loved hearing the stories of your former students messaging you um, (laughs) and like asking you on Twitter, oh, oh, have I interpreted correctly? Like probably going, hey, hope you're well, you know, hope you're keeping good. (laughs) But like, did I actually do this justice? Exactly. Well, I was really surprised and interested by the fact that they were able to contact me because obviously when I was doing my exams, um, I never had any access to the poets I was studying. I couldn't go and shake Emily Dickinson awake from her grave or anything. So when I went to my Instagram, it had, as they say, these times blown up and it was full of messages, not only from my own former students, but from students all over the country. Um, And it was really heartening. They were so friendly and so warm and so enthusiastic. And some of them were obviously wanting the answer, so to speak. But some of them were just speaking about how they had discussed the poem with their friends afterwards and they wanted to know whose um, interpretation was the most accurate. And my favourite one was uh, a student who just emailed me saying, boss poem (laughs) is like the greatest compliment I think you could ever receive from an 18 year old you know you've made it um, with the kings of culture you know when they're all getting in touch with you like that so tell us about the poem it's called Guest Room Mm -hmm. so it's part of my first poetry collection that came out in 2021 called Eat or We Both Starve and it came out with Carcanet Press and it's a poem I suppose that grapples with or explores the changing relationship between mother and daughter, um, particularly, I suppose, as the daughter gets older and by extension, the mother too. And I suppose that feeling when you have your own home as an adult and your mother comes to visit you and that strange switch in roles um, and wondering, you know, having seen your mother get ready for guests and so on, wondering Um, if you level up, if you're up to scratch in terms of your domestic prowess. 
but there are so many different interpretations and I think a lot of um, a lot of the students were worried about you know the status of the mother whether she was alive or dead and, and the relationship between the mother and the daughter and really what's so wonderful about poetry is that there isn't any real answer and the examiners don't know the answer either because there isn't one it's really up to your own interpretation so that's what's so wonderful about poetry is that you're always right no matter what you you kind of infer from it as long as you have support so um, it seemed to have captured their imagination in that way in terms of that rela- that parental relationship which I suppose they're beginning to experience now that they're moving out from home too and their relationship with their parents is changing mm. Well uh, it's called Guest Room as I said I, we'd love you to read it for us if you would I'd be absolutely honoured and I'm going to dedicate this to all of the Leaving Cert class of 2023 and <laughs> their teachers Fab Guest Room I changed the duvet cover like she showed me, inside out, corner to corner. I lifted over my head, seams must be flush. I fold a pyramid of towels jeweled with tiny soaps, body lotions borrowed from hotels, the red hot water bottle I'll fill later, her rubber husband. I shaken back the carpet forest fresh, Suck spider's web from each corner, grey and fuzzy, thick as pelts. My mother's perfume sniffs out that I did not iron the sheets. Her nightdress pressed into a perfect square, a village of potions on the bedside locker. My heart sags, an empty hammock yawning for the cradle of her arms, the animal comfort of her wolf fur coat. I hear her pottering in my kitchen, tidying. I turn out the light. Night cracks its knuckles. Wow, beautiful. Thank you. And and I know, I mean, there was just, there's there's so much in that poem. There's so much emotion in it. And of course, the, the piece that I went straight to is shaken back the carpet before it's fresh. <laughs> and I, I was just wondering how many of the students knew or would know what shaken back is. You know, I just remember the ad and I think you can actually still buy it now, can you? Shaken back. I actually went looking because <laughs> I was curious. You actually can. And um Actually, none of the students um, got in contact with me about that, but the mothers did because they had asked their children. So the moms are all contacting me on Twitter and the students on Instagram. And the moms were like very mortified that their 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 offspring didn't know Shaken Vac. But I figured it's that's okay. They have other talents, I'm sure. Well, we actually found the ad. Do you remember this? Do the Shaken Vac and put the freshness back. Do the Shaken Vac and put the freshness back. When you come. That's a great poem too, honestly. Uh, There you go. Um, The line that I, my particular favourite line in that, it's so strong. My mother's perfume sniffs out that I did not iron the bed sheets. I just think that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So come here, you were an English teacher, as you said, you're a poet. So what does it mean to you personally, Victoria, to feature in the Leaving Cert? It's just an enormous honour and a real privilege. And I think... Um, as I said earlier, having been through the journey of student and teacher and now poet, um, I hope it's kind of showing the students that anything is possible and that if you keep on, like I've been writing since I could hold a pen, so if you keep on doing something that you love and you keep on dedicating time to it, it will come to fruition eventually. Poet Victoria Kenefick talking to Catherine Thomas on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show about her poem Guest Room featuring on this year's 
leaving Sir English exam. Finally on Playback Daily, should dogs be kept off blue flag beaches this summer? That's the question Claire Byrne put this morning to Lorda Scott, Green Party councillor at Greystones, and Kathleen Murray, dog behaviour expert. Lordy, you're in favour of these restrictions, are you? I am indeed, yeah. No, thanks, Claire, for having me on. And um, I'm Green Party councillor. Um, I'm also a vet, not practising at the moment, so I have plenty of experience with dog owners and dogs. And I also set up Clean Coast North Wicklow. So we're a group that goes out cleaning beaches once a month in our area in Greystones. And we see firsthand um, dog fouling. We see firsthand litter problems on our beaches. Um, but I can also say that like our beach and our coastal life, it's a very important part of our community. And we have people down at beaches from sunrise, swimming, doing yoga, running, walking and having our blue flag accreditation is a very, very important part to our community. So when you're doing the beach cleanup, what is what are you seeing in the main? We're seeing, what are we not seeing might be the easiest <laughs> answer, Claire. We're seeing, I mean, I'd say the two most biggest culprits that we see are dog fouling. So either dog poos just left, not picked up or picked up in the bag and still left on the beach. Yeah, for I, don't people know why to people, I don't know why people do that. Pick it's it up and just leave it there. a mystery to me. But we, we see everything. We see cigarette butts, um, clothing, balloons, um, things that people have deliberately left or things that have just dropped out of their bags, we think, as they're, they're picking up and going home. So you're saying this clearly as somebody who loves animals as well. Yeah. You're, you're a vet but you just don't think that they have a place on a blue flag beach in swimming season. So it's important just to come back a little bit on what we're talking about. So the blue flag accreditation is an internationally accredited award so it's not something that you know a local authority has made up and there's a very high standard of different criteria so there's a very high standard of environmental criteria safety criteria access criteria educational piece as well so blue flag beaches have excellent water quality so that means they're very safe for people to swim in and that's an absolute priority and as I said they're, they're a prize to have we've only three blue flag beaches in Wicklow we're very proud to have one in Greystones and part of keeping that excellent water quality is making sure that there's no potential contamination from dog fouling. So unfortunately, the answer to that at the moment is restricting them on the beaches just between June and September. Okay, so well, just during the bathing let's season. Let's find out what Kathleen thinks now and stick on those uh, headphones, Lorda, if you will. Kathleen, what do you think about these restrictions during bathing season 11 to 7pm? Well, um, I think that, well, in Donegal we're not short on beaches, so <laughs> we have quite a reaction. Um, a lot of people are for it, a lot of people are against it. Personally, um, I think that if people picked up after themselves, there would be no need to restrict the dogs at all. But, you know, the other way of looking at it is that between 11 and 7 is the hottest part of the day anyway, and dirty dogs should be in the shade at that time of the day rather than out in the open. So it's no loss to the dogs Mm -hmm. um, themselves. But at the same time, you know, um, responsible dog owners are being penalised by irresponsible dog owners all the time. And you have to wonder at, you know, what can be done about that. Because I know that when tests have been done, you know, dog poo, feces on the beach is a huge problem. And I know that the contamination is quite a lot compared to uh, humans and birds and other wildlife. So you have to start asking the questions why uh, that is. And one of the things is, I suppose, because of the volume of it for, for a start, because people are not picking up after themselves. And the second thing is basically, um, is it anything can be done about it? Is it the dog food? Because I know tests have been done on treats and dog foods that are contaminated and that can cause to the, the faeces being contaminated as well. So, so but, you, but you're saying everybody is being hit with this, even the people who will keep the dog on the lead and pick up after that dog on the beach. 
Yeah, well, you see, the people are always crying on about dogs should be on leads and dogs should be on leads and they shouldn't be let here and they shouldn't be let there. Dogs, when I was growing up, dogs went wherever they wanted. There was no restriction on dogs at all. So when I grew up in that environment, there was very little trouble, actually, because people knew the dogs and the dogs knew people. People have become very distant from dogs now. And so the amount of people who are scared of dogs and things have grown a lot as well. Intolerance is a huge thing. Nobody wants a friendly dog running up to them. Nobody wants an unruly dog running up to them anyway. So if people were responsible and they kept their dogs close to them, they taught their dogs a bit of basic manners, there would be none of these problems at all. Like, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, they're just not teaching their dogs the basics and manners. You know? yeah. Lord, I have somebody on here saying, I always pick up after my dog on the beach and I pick up the surrounding bit of sand as well to make sure that nothing is left behind. Why should I be punished? And that is the problem that you've got really responsible dog owners who aren't going to be allowed to bring their dogs to the beaches uh, between June and, and August. Yeah, no, and that's a fair point. And we have to acknowledge there are loads of really responsible dog owners out there. And, you know, I meet them and see them and talk to them. And they often come up when they see us out picking up, you know, litter from the beaches in our high-vis vests. They'll come up and talk to you and thank you and explain how they've done their own little bit of beach cleaning as well. But unfortunately, until we get everybody acting in a responsible way, and we're very far from that at the moment, as Kathleen points out, Ultimately, it comes down to water safety and keeping our water nice and clean and safe for people to swim in during the bathing season. So it is important to remember it is just between June and September. Um, It is just if you have a large beach, for example, in Greystones, it's just the restriction in the blue flag area. So dogs are free to go elsewhere on the beach. Um, And I suppose it's a small price for the responsible dog owners to have to pay for the advantage then of having a nice, clean, um, clean environment. Keeping dogs off blue flag beaches this summer. Discussed by Lorda Scott, Green Party councillor for Greystones, and Kathleen Murray, dog behaviour expert, on Today with Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. But for me, until the next time, thank you for listening. And good luck.